Hey guys, this is Emmett. Welcome to your weekly installment of Exhaust, the podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today we're doing another cinema exhaust, I guess this series could unofficially be called. First one was with Jeff Schellenberger. We did Videodrome and now we are leaping ahead 10 years to a completely forgotten, perhaps for good reason, documentary called The Last Party by Robert Downey Jr. about the 1992 presidential conventions. Um, and I am here with Josh Bregman, friend of the show. What's up, Josh? Hey, Evan. How's it going? Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Um, do you want to do a brief intro of what you're all about? or? Uh... Uh, what am I all about? <sighs> Um, <laughs> well, first of all, this is the unofficial, this is the like ask an Xer, right? Okay. So yeah. So to the extent that I'm an Xer, I should probably qualify that because I come in on the tail end of Xing. So I was born in 75. So in 92 convention, I was junior, senior year of high school. So that, that's kind of where I'm at with all that. And I think Downey at that point was... He Chaplin had just been released mm-hmm. the year before, and I looked it up because uh, we had discussed it a bit, and it looked like he was kind of post cocaine at that point, I think, or coming on the tail end of it. So he's so he gets married to what's her name in in ninety two, by ninety three they have their first kid, uh-huh. and but it seems like even before they have the kid, he's sort of like in and out of sobriety. Uh-huh. And like, because addiction is progressive, like when he goes back out, it like gets, he's like immediately in jail. It's uh-huh. not like he goes to a few parties. It's a little weird. It's just like, boom. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, he's 27 in the film, I believe. Uh-huh. I, at that time would have been 17. But so it's like, I was still like watching him as a teenager but I guess we're considered, I mean, the X, extra generation starts in 65, 67. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying, he intros the film talking about war, how he's, his generation is only known the wars. He grew up in Vietnam. So literally, I think two months after I was born was when the Saigon fell. Mm-hmm. And so my memory of that is pretty dim. But my memory of the Reagan era and the Clinton era that, followed it and how my parents and people adults around me reacted to that is pretty clear so that might be of some interest for sure yeah definitely it's one of the earliest things he says in the film right it's vietnam iran contra right and uh and then desert storm desert storm yeah the the first one (laughs) yeah the first one Yeah. yeah 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 so to me as somebody who's been in recovery, I can sort of like understand where he's at when he makes this film. Right. Cause he's also in his late twenties. Right. I'm not too far away from that now. And you probably, maybe you went through a similar thing in your late twenties where you're starting to reach like a new maturity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where things really stop, like novelty stops being as exceptional or exciting and you're less snowed by it. And your concerns about the world, even if you were concerned about it before, become bigger, right? Like the aperture on your life opens. And you can see that that's happening for him. In addition to him, like really trying to stay sober. Right, 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 right. Yeah, the film definitely has this 
therapeutic element for him. They definitely explicitly talk about that at some points and that he's doing it for those reasons. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, he mentions that life's he's starting to realize life's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm-hmm. Ironically, you know, the prefrontal cortex also develops from 22 to 26. Yeah. <laughs> which is <laughs> you know, of cognition that enables us to think in the future, a few steps, a few more steps than one. So yeah, so he's definitely coming out of that phase. And I thought the stuff with his dad was really interesting, but maybe maybe it's good to set up the film itself because I had never heard of it until you mentioned it. Yeah, so I have to credit, I can't remember which listener sent this in, but I will email you <laughs> uh, and let you know that we've done this because thank you. So it seems like part of what happened as he's entering this stage in his life is he starts to become politically interested in the world because it of course seems bigger than what he's been focused on his whole life. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be a real regard or concern for the other that I think is like authentic in him as we're going through this. And so he gets a film crew together and decides to go both to the Democratic National Convention and then the Republican National Convention and basically interview none of the candidates, really talk to no one about any coherent issues, except for a few famous people. And also like Mike Rupert, who, and it's, it's a, I didn't know it was a Ross Perot guy, but we'll get to that <laughs> at a certain point. And uh, it's, I mean, I, I'm struggling to really capture it because it's, totally incoherent as a film it's a lot of him just doing man on the street interviews i was te- i was explaining it to my wife and the way she described it is she says she says oh that sounds like gen x or all gas no brakes mm. that mm. guy who just drives around to like you know the juggalo gathering and just like interviews everyone there about random stuff and they're just sort of on drugs and screaming at him it has like that sort of gonzo appeal uh-huh also, actually, that's kind of the format of Slackers in a way. I think it's Slackers is a little more structured, but the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's totally right. Yeah. Follow someone and then they uh, enter a setting with someone else and you follow person A into that setting and then you leave with person B and follow them around for a little while. Yeah. And just kind of drift from psychic framework to psychic framework without any... I think the slackers thing is great because I think if there's anything that's like quintessentially Gen X about this, it's sort of that um, element to it. I mean, I think looking at this film, one of the things that was so fascinating to me is how everything is obviously becoming more mediatized. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the guys who ends up um, working for the Democratic National Convention, Mike Evans, and then <laughs> infiltrates the Republican National Convention. Uh, very funny guy. Like, I liked him as a character. But he also says, towards the end of the film, the media is the nuclear weapon of the 90s. <laughs> right? <clears throat> and so there's that sense. But it's also clear that um, the type of, like, boredom that has this negativity in the 90s that Slackers is about and that... Uh, there's this need to overcome just disappears once we all get connected all the time mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. as b- somebody who's sort of like a relatively cuspy like a uh, millennial xer like i grew up with that type of boredom and then at a certain important point in my life it just disappeared right. um and so well, yeah they, yeah they decide early in the film that political conventions are simply spectacle 
right? The only purpose is advertising as they say. Yeah, one guy says that, yeah. Literally in the first 10 or 15 minutes. So then, so there's no exploration of politics in the sense of like, like what do we, what are these candidates stand for? What do they propose to do? What policies do they want to enact? What are the odds of any of that happening? Mm-hmm. Are, is it good or bad that those things would happen or not? Right. Like none of that is on the table in this film. Like they're just purely engaged in the spectacle of it. Although they spend a lot of time with grassroots activists on both sides of the aisle who are heavily invested in policy outcomes of one sort or another, but also heavily invested in it as spectacle. So it's like, yeah, I think, I mean, it's definitely crossing that threshold where um, that sort of, I guess the naivete about it being uh, a substantive activity, you know, Mm -hmm. like concrete outcomes that are important is kind of going by the wayside. Like, but also like, he's not sure about that. He gets involved. His dad pats him on the back for being involved, right? And they talk, and his dad even says, and this is super fascinating to me. If you don't know, if the listeners don't know, his dad's Robert Downey Sr., who was an underground filmmaker in the 60s and 70s, made Putney Swope, which is an amazing, hilarious film. And so his dad says, yeah, I voted for Kennedy because he had a hot wife. Yeah, he had a great looking wife. (laughs) He had a great looking wife. And, you know, Nixon seemed like kind of a drag, man. Like, <laughs> and so, and then I'm like, okay, so how far back does this politics of spectacle go really, you know? And mm-hmm. we know about the Kennedy-Nixon debate. Kennedy did better on TV. Nixon did better on radio, you know? Or yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Mythology. So, but also it's like, yeah. So, and then they're having this discussion in their LA Hills, Hollywood Hills home. And talking, and it's like, yeah, it's as bad as it's ever, I've ever seen it, man. And they're in this like really lovely setting, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and then they're walking down. And I, it, that was such a significant scene to me. Like, it was very forced in a way, the sort of father-son camaraderie. I mean, I don't doubt that they have affection for each other, but also like, it just seemed very staged and forced in the moment. And then um, they're like walking downhill into Los, down to Sunset Boulevard, it looked yeah. like. And very uh like the symbolism of it that they're kind of coming down off the mountain to go see what's going on in the polis you know yeah like, yeah totally yeah <laughs> i went down to the Paris <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with robert downey jr <laughs> Jr. yeah yeah and like yeah well, this isn't something we normally care about or think is important and really isn't to our lives but like yeah let's go check it out man you know and it was it like but not like um but also that there was no reference, and I know it's a film, so they have to find people to film, but there was no reference to like anything like written or theoretical or like ideological. No, you see Robert Downey Jr. sort of doing civics 101 flashcards right. and stuff like that, but that right. never gets used in the film. So you're wondering why he's doing it at all, or if it's just so they can say he did it or have an ironic sort of slacker joke about it. Yeah, it's the, there's a lot that got left on the cutting room floor. You can tell for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because it's also we should clarify is an extremely cocaine movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's frenetic. Robert Downey Jr. has this whole character called Goat Boy, mm-hmm. where he just hops around like a small goat, and that never really gets 
it's the significance of that. It's totally, it's totally baffling. And that it's, it frustrates his, I think, ability to interview. There Mm -hmm. are times when as an actor, his emotional instrument seems really attuned to whoever he's talking to. There's one moment where he's talking to like, I think a graffiti artist in New York and he's really there and embodied and present for that interview. And it's probably the, like one of the most authentic moments in the film. And the guy is just like, I've like, I have a lot of friends that have died. Mm-hmm. Like this is, it's, I mean, it was other than when he talks to a kid who's done a great job of just like verbally owning him on camera and then sort yeah. of like, talks to this small kid about his parents divorce like probably the most he's most present other times it's you can tell he's just sort of like on cocaine and shoving the microphone in people's faces and then finding other famous people to talk to we've got az we've got be real from cypress hill we've got dave mustaine from megadeth we've got a whole we've got willie d We've got a whole bunch of other people in this. We've got uh, Oliver Stone, the two Olivers, Stone and North. Inner Rohrbacher surfing. Oh my God. Yeah. There is like, it was really a feast of remembering some guys. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that guy. Yeah. It was like a lot of oh, that guy. Yeah. My favorite. Dude. Yeah. My favorite thing with the um, Dana Rohrbacher thing is he's like, give me liberty or give me surf. And he's like, that's what Republicans should be all about. Liberty and surf. I was like, yeah, but it says or. <laughs> <laughs> like. <Yeah. laughs> what? <laughs> In Dana's utopia, we all surf at the point of barrel of a gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's just, it was totally baffling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, there was, a, yeah. I mean, it, well, also it shifted perspective from him being the interviewer to the movie being about him and being interviewed by his camera crew and his director. Mm-hmm. Couldn't really make up its mind about what perspective it wanted to take there. I mean, the closest you could like say that it had any narrative thread actually was the father-son relationship because it kind of bookends the film. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of what's been going on on Exhaust, like that Lashian handoff, torch handoff there from the new left 60s to the Gen Xers is pretty fascinating, I think. Mm -hmm. We should maybe talk about some of the things that felt because before we started recording, you and I were talking about how discouraging it was that certain things were just like exactly the same. I think the first and most prominent one to me was like the race discussion. Yeah. Which was like police violence. I mean, in- I think interestingly, New York in the 90s is very different than New York post Giuliani and post 9 right. 11. Like, super different. But uh, the dynamics are still there. The same, like, totally, I would say, politically uh, confused, like, rhetoric around something that is very serious was uh, present there. So Robert Downey Jr. has a conversation with one guy who I think is in Brooklyn, uh, who's drinking a 40, um, and is, like, basically, like, any of these cops would beat the shit out of me. Robert Downey Jr. does the typical centrist thing where he's just like, you know, it seems like both of you guys won't give each other enough like 
space to see each other as human you know what i mean like they see you as all these black stereotypes and you see them as all these white cop stereotypes as if that's like really the conflict Mm -hmm. like it's just like a material class conflict between like what happens when you're poor you know um that's happening there Uh, but then there are these guys that he bumps into later who are like carrying uh, a coffin symbolically but then the guy's demand is that black nationalists, right? That yeah, right. black nationalists who demand that white people like Robert Downey Jr. have to change things on behalf of black people. Right. Yeah, that was striking. I was like, oh, that's proto. That's very proto contemporary. Like some of the nouns aren't the same, but the yeah, idea, the argument's the same. Like the you know the search I'm, for allies. Like, Search for allies. I'm not here to educate you. You have to educate your people. Mm-hmm. That, that whole thing. Yeah, somebody was on Twitter the other day, no name, I think, that was like, how come white people don't organize themselves? And like, you know, you guys have to like figure out your own stuff. Like stop trying to like work with black people. We have our own thing going. And I was like, yeah. uh, historically, that doesn't look how you think it should look. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, they do, but not in <laughs> Yeah. In fact, that might be the problem. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what, what we're in right now. The other thing that struck me very much the same, there was a woman on the DNC convention floor who said, yeah, I'm used to grassroots activist organizing, and it's interesting to be here with all these party people who are on the inside and doing the hard work, quote unquote, and maybe we should get some of our people in there. Do you remember that one? Yeah, that was fascinating to me because oh, I was wow. like, that was just 2016 to now all over again, you know. Right. I, and I think the real, like, if there's any difference now, it's that, like, the NGO space has been totally incorporated into the party spectacle space. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, it seems like there's still, I don't want to say that there's like any political potential there really but there is some there's more daylight between these two things and now i think the sort of like ngo world has become way first of all just expanded way more and is way more i would say conscious of party politics just as party politics are more conscious of it and they're more interwoven than it seems to be i can't really imagine anybody now who's part of almost any NGO saying like, well, we're not, we haven't really been interested in electoral politics. Like you might not be like working for campaigns, but the way social media has sort of like involved us all in electoral politics, at least at the spectacular level, it's hard to imagine anybody saying that today, but Right. Yeah. Well, that's all been subsumed. I think there was an extra electoral left mm-hmm. in the late nineties, the global justice movement. And then, you know, if you want to put Occupy in that realm. Uh, yeah. And then I think Bernie, the Bernie campaign kind of subsumed all of that into the electoral mechanism. Yeah. And that doesn't. And also I think there, well, I should be fair. There was also, uh, an anti-war movement in the Iraq war period that was very uh, numerous and vigorous. Yes. Uh, that uh, completely died when Obama got into power. And that was, you know, largely the function of Obama was to defuse that, um, which he was successful at. Uh, 
so yeah i th- i mean it's interesting so the the sort of pre global justice left embodied in this film is like this sort of motley collection of um, interest uh, issue-based advocacy groups Mm -hmm. that aren't fully developed into like NGO, right? So you have like the ACT UP, AIDS activists, um, Sharpton's in it. uh, God, yeah, Sharpton. Then the Farrakhan uh, people are in it. And then what was the other left one? It was why am I blanking? Now? Well, there was the whole feminist thing, right. which seemed to be pro-choice movement, sort of right. Right. around that as well. And it's it does yeah. it, it's harder to remember because its ideology is it's less specific in terms of like what it's aiming towards. It's not something like reparations or criminal justice, and it's not like we need to solve this AIDS crisis. It's a little more diffuse. Right, right. But he kind of hops between those groups. And then on the right, you basically have the abortion, the Christian right. And then he talks to a segment of the right that disavows the Christian right and is upset that they're sort of put into the same category as them or that the Christian right gets to be seen as the public face of the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, either way, it's sort of a, a sort of motley collection of issue groups um, that are sort of um, you know, engaging people on, on a single issue basis and it's not really coherently tied together. And then the film is shot through with, he keeps returning and I actually gave him a lot of credit for this. He keeps returning to the homelessness problem, which is really um, the only expression in the film that we see of like an economic issue or a class issue. Right. And he does this interesting like, thing where he talks to Willie D in uh-huh. Texas and goes out to like, <clears throat> the hood in Texas and there are like just horses walking around the roads are unpaved. Like that was wild. Um, yeah. And the guy in D says that he's like, we, yeah, we, we're not even, he basically says we're not developed. We're still working with horses here. Like, no. And that's, what's really interesting. Situation. <laughs> yeah. And then he goes and finds like a suburban poor family in like, fl- I can't remember where they I were. Suburban Houston is best. I can yeah. Tell Right. So that was more like an urban hub in Texas. Yeah. In, in Houston. And what was fascinating is so it's like Robert Downey Jr. Who's in like full nineties drip, like all the time, right? Like pleated khakis with dress shoes, wearing a tucked in camo t-shirt with a black baseball cap, you know, like stuff like that. And then he finds this family who's on food stamps and they're, they're like pulled out at 1985, they look like. And then he has them get in a confrontation with their neighbors over how the neighbors are Republicans who are like against the taxes and unemployment, all this stuff, but who are apparently like at least superficially generous to the family next door or something like that. And they get in this political squabble in front of Robert Downey Jr., who does a poor job of moderating it. But though it was fascinating to see. And that family looks like they're out of the 70s the late seventies almost. And so there's this whole thing I was thinking about where you have, and this feels less the case now having lived all over the country and been in like flyover country and then like urban hubs of like uneven development in terms of um, uh, like an industry or economy. It's, It's more like whether you're undeveloping or not, or rather the extent to which you're undeveloping now and then 
social media has just changed the uneven cultural development. Mm-hmm. Like trends hit places at like the same time almost now. Like right. it is rare to see people who look like they're dressing from like 2005 anywhere in the country in 2021. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's interesting though. I mean, there's still, I was in, I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is a small Southwestern resort town. You've talked about it in the show. Uh, things are opening up here a little bit and some people are circling in, cycling in from Texas and Los Angeles, which is like our main, we're the main getaway for those places. And you, you, they're easily spottable now yeah. that I'm local. And I was living in Los Angeles before and it's like, oh, these people are so polished. Their fashions are mm-hmm. different and their body language is different. Their, you know, their carriage, their gait, you know, the whole presentation oh yeah i live in la now we've swapped and uh i know exactly what you're talking i was just i was in god where was i i was out in los feliz yesterday and i was for the first time right and i was just like god i'm still not used to it (laughs) i was just like this is so different yeah 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 so in a way it's like yeah social media has like simultanized a lot of the fashion trends but also or just any trend but also there's still, I think in, in this place too, is particularly kind of trapped in amber in some ways. Yeah. But, but yeah, that's a really interesting observation. I thought that's the thing. And, uh, you know, he and his director also had some good instincts in those scenes. Like that was a great, interesting scene that got out a lot of sort of the core ideological frameworks that people are working with. Yeah. Um, that was the most interesting scene in, in the film. Bar none. Because the thing that the woman says, who's like, not on food stamps, but the obviously a little bit more solidly middle class husband is, and who's like, yeah, a little bit younger and more attractive is, it's clear that she's like worked as a go-go dancer or something like that. She sort of alludes to it and that she had a failed first marriage, was like really struggling. And then sort of, she thinks, she argues bootstrapped herself up. And her husband, who's also been unemployed before, she says, now, when you were unemployed, were you down on Bush? So this is within the last four years, right? Right, right, And he goes, no, I was more down on myself. And she goes, that's right. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. That whole conversation was just like this perfect microcosm of like the American psyche as it relates to like the economy, the larger social structure, like individual worth and like. Yeah, I mean, it just all came out right there. Like, that's the whole, you know, it's hilarious that people write books, like making arguments about these things, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean, it's it's the same. Five minute film clip. And it's just, and that scene also was very much like, yeah, this is just the same stuff. And I know plenty of people who still would say those same things in those same words. And we had those same experiences, like, and I kept thinking watching this movie that it's like, this was 30 years ago. And, you know, the only thing that I could really pick out as strong differences, I mean, and I would add to that what you just said about the NGO sort of sublimation, but the, you know, the issues are slightly different. Like in this movie, AIDS and abortions, like really the central contentious cultural issue, yeah. I think, he probably is focusing, he seems more interested actually in homelessness and poverty natively, but obviously cinematically um, these cultural war issues are more 
easily accessed photographically. Mm-hmm. You know, well, and the AIDS people so, have have incredible organizing discipline. Like yeah. they are out there doing die-ins. Like they've got. We see camera footage of one of the guys who in the original ACT UP movement who dies not too long after this movie is is wrapped up. Um, standing on a car screaming like with a lesion on his forehead like they interrupt the Republican National Convention like they're infiltrating right. like they've been in the game in a life or death way that is palpable and moving to everyone who comes into contact with them including the film crew including some of the volunteers and especially Robert Downey Jr. himself right 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 but the, yeah, those issues aren't uh, obviously 30 years later as salient or at least as public. The abortion thing is kind of always there, but doesn't seem to be the linchpin around which elections are had. No, and Amy Coney Barrett is just like, that's not going anywhere. So it's sort of like, if she is saying that, then it's Yeah, and I also anywhere. think 30 years on, I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I tend to be of the left in some regard, and I don't, I mean, I'm still in a gray area with that nowadays, but, uh, you know, I have friends on the right who, mm-hmm. I think everybody's kind of seeing now that the culture war is a mechanism, not an ideological conflict, right? Like that it's, yeah. you know, that the, the war isn't meant to be one, it's meant to be continuous. And for people I know on either side that actually want it to be one, they're starting to realize that, it seems to me. Yeah, I get the same sense too. Yeah. Um, So those things are different. But, you know, you could easily swap those culture war issues out with the contemporary culture war issues, which are function the same way, but um, just have our different, um, you know, that the particular issue is different. But the overall stuff is basically the same. Um, And it's funny that he also starts, I mean, yeah, it's just so wildly incoherent. He starts the movie talking about the war. We've only ever known war. Jumps from that to we've only known a government that lied to us, Mm -hmm. which is sort of like the arch Reaganite thesis, right? The government's bad and wrong and can't help you and shouldn't help you. And and then jumps from that to deploring Reagan. We never talk about the war again. Nope. Uh, well, I mean, it was over probably by the time he made the film. Um, and, you know, so that that was like the interregnum between, you know, the first Gulf War and 9-11, which kicked off the forever wars. Uh, and yeah, again, like, yeah, just no substantive discussion of, of any of, uh, he's just not interested in any of the, those issues. Um, What's funny is he talks to Oliver Stone at some point at the DNC and Oliver Stone is extremely based of course. And is like, Oh, this is bullshit. It's all pablum. Nobody's talked about the cause and effect of any policy or anything substantive. It's like all emotional appeal and distracting from the issues. And then that's basically what Robert Downey Jr. does for like most of the film, except for the moments where he does interview people. And it's really interesting. Like when he talks to like the mulleted Guido guy with the tattoos and the silk shirt outside of wall street, like, which was a a wonderful scene. Like they're all like unapologetically greed is good. Like they're exactly who you think they are. And also they're a lot of fun. Frankly, yeah, like, yeah. those guys are still there. Like I was still watching, there. 
I spent I spent 10 years in New York and some of the fun of it was saying things in the background like oh that Fridays is still there on like 42nd Street or whatever yeah or 6th Avenue or whatever that is and you know and I was like yeah those guys are still there they have slightly different haircuts and slightly different t-shirt cuts and you know mm-hmm. like or lapel sizes or whatever but like those guys are still fucking there and um and I really love the little capper to that scene so they get done talking about how greed is good money makes the world go around money is the good um the pursuit of money leads to the greatest social utility all that sort of thing and um he ends the scene by like flopping around in the the reflecting pond yeah and you're like why is he doing this and all they're all sitting there at their tables uh in this outdoor patio bar patio watching him and saying i guess that's how you make the real money um that's why he makes the real money that's what they said because he's a pretty big star at this point. well one guy says that's why you make more than me that's why you make more than me. Yeah. And I was like, that has like nailed a certain level of what's annoying about Hollywood playing on politics. Yeah, yeah. Like perfectly. But also he he gets to the end of the pond and he gets out and he says like, it becomes clear that he was doing that on a bet or yeah. a dare and that they were, it was for money. Yeah. So the point was basically, okay, you say money's good. I'm going to do this publicly. I'm going to make a fool of myself in public for money do you think that's good is that something you would do like so he's kind of like suddenly undercutting their point or showing that there's a line that they won't cross or um yeah their own sort of ideology has limits and i thought it was kind of it was goofy self-deprecating and kind of elegant in that in its way like instead of the other parts of the film where he kind of tries to argue you know he can't help he can't he doesn't have any air that like he's an objective narrator or, you know, figure stumbling through the American political scene and just staring at it with a sort of view from Mars. He gets in arguments with people. He tries to fight a corner in a lot of the, in a lot of the interaction. Mm-hmm. But I thought that that simple action was like a lot, much better and more cinematic and more like in a tune with his. It also seemed, yeah. To, yeah. In tune with who he is because yeah. So he's fresh off of Chaplin in this. It made me think of Jim Carrey after Man on the Moon, mm-hmm. who has a really hard time shrugging off the Kaufman character mm-hmm. because he so embodies it. One way to think about this is because there's this whole scene where Robert Downey Jr. is talking. He goes to Chaplin Studios, which he describes as his church. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, like this is him trying to figure out how to shrug off the rest of this character. Right. Where he goes out and he clowns and he does these like Chaplin-esque slapstick things. It just mm-hmm. has this whole other weird like early 90s quality to it going on. And the question I kept asking myself about what was going on in the film is like, what was it trying to capture? or What did it really capture about this 1992 moment? Because... My understanding of it is that like people obviously it was up in the air, weren't necessarily sure that Clinton was gonna win. There are even some volunteers within the DNC that are skeptical that he can win the primary. Mm-hmm. And he ends it's ends up being like a shellacking for Yeah. But he the, lost New Hampshire. I think that was the issue. So Yeah, he hung in there. Nobody had won past New Hampshire. Like nobody had lost New Hampshire and won before. Yeah. And so- the expectation was that he was pretty much done for. I don't remember exactly the sequence of events, but he did. 
I mean, some wild things. The sister soldier moment, I think, was before New Hampshire. I could be wrong about that. And then he did the Ricky Ray Rector thing where he left the campaign trail to go back to Arkansas. Yeah. Execute a mentally handicapped man. Handicapped man who was on death row for something to demonstrate that he wasn't, you know, he could, he, he was, he could, you know, he was a killer and he was a killer of black people. So, and then the sister soldier moment was just him putting very self-consciously putting a lot of distance between him and the civil rights movement really. And the black movements of the time. So Mm -hmm. decoupling from that very self-consciously, um, trying to win back the Reagan Democrats, the hard hats, right? And they talk about that very briefly in the movie that his sexual adventurism and um, scandals. Cost him New Hampshire is, I think, one of the things that's intimated in the film. And that might be a problem for flyover country Joe Sixpack. The thing I thought was fascinating was we go, we start off in LA, we go to New York for the DNC then we go to Houston for the RNC and then we go back to LA. He spends no time in flyover country talking to Joe Sixpack. <laughs> no, except for the except for the confrontation with the neighbors. But right. there's no sustained interest in anyone. Right. And that's why it's so difficult to figure out what it captures. But to me, the most telling moment of the film overall was when he reports to the camera at the end of the film that mm-hmm. his father says after Clinton wins the presidency it felt like the sixties in here again. Yes. Yes. And I was like, that is remarkable. <laughs> yeah, multiple. So in the beginning, his father says, you know, voted for Jack Kennedy because he, he had a beautiful wife and Nixon was a drag mm-hmm. so sort of admitting. And he, then he says in a heartbeat later, that was so stupid. Like I was just going on aesthetics. And then later in the film, he says, felt like the 60s in here. And his dad praises Clinton for getting past New Hampshire, sticking it out. And he's, you know, maybe he's this new Jack Kennedy character. And, and I remember explicitly at the time, that was how a lot of people, including like my parents who were sort of New Deal Democrats, um, but they saw Clinton as this revival of the Kennedy mm-hmm. uh, mythos. And the hope was that, you know, and literally what Downey Sr. says, like, let's hope he does something with it. But they don't really aren't too concerned about what he does with it. And, and then they're, the only time we hear from Clinton in the film, well, twice, one when he promises that there's going to be some young people talking at the convention, which we, we never, never see. Yeah. yeah, never materializes, which is like a, a kind of maybe an inadvertent like. Um, but it never goes commented on in the film. Right. But it would have been amazing if they had come back to it because it would have, it's kind of a perfect um, jab. Presidency, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, um, and then, uh, and then he later, he has that bit where he says, I feel if you grew up in a single family household, I feel your pain. Um, you're special too, is what he says. Yeah. And everyone cheers like gangbusters. Mm-hmm. Which reminded me, ironically, a lot. I was thinking a lot about Trump during this movie. And Pat Buchanan makes a, an appearance too briefly. I think he's like so under-regarded as a figure on the, uh, like by, the, by people on the left or the center as like how influential he was on the right. Totally. And how 
much Trump really was like lifting his Pat Buchanan's whole shtick, right? And and also um, the the Trump comment after the Capitol riot, which was, you know, you're very special people. Um, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but it was almost identical to what Clinton was saying to them in the convention. Mm -hmm. That's what everyone wants to hear. You're very special people and I love you very much. Yeah, it's the culture, it's deep culture of narcissism stuff that's happening, you know, and to me, that was one of the things where I was thinking about like, wow, like Trump really just wasn't a break with anything at all, actually, (laughs) like just at all. Because when you watch Pat Buchanan, you're like, oh, and it's funny that I, you know, I had moments of remembering that while Trump was in office or while he was running because I grew up watching the fucking McLaughlin group with Mm -hmm. my mom like every week and he's on there like saying his shit yeah yeah but it also the one thing that Trump was good at is that everyone was as crooked as Trump and if Trump was the first to say it then no one else could say it with any credibility mm-hmm. and that that's what he was good at and that also he was way funnier than mm-hmm. anyone in this movie like politician or not like yeah. just an incredible bully you know yeah. like but politically like not some exotic figure that came in to wreck the system at all. I mean, there's just, there's almost like a straight line from this stuff to what we just saw. Oh yeah. I mean, it was so straight that I was uh, expecting him to appear and not because I like was projecting like retro retconning him. Like he was a figure in that era and it wouldn't have been out of place at all for Downey to have stumbled onto him, especially in the- I, I had a moment too, where I was like, they were talking about, yeah they were talking about somebody and because I, I know that um roger stone had been bugging trump to run and show up and trump does I some independent it, party stuff with pat buchanan at some point in the 90s and i was like was this now or is this 96 i can't really remember you know is he going to show up in this and then what's unveiled is that there's this whole discussion towards the end of the film very briefly about third partyism and we find out that mike rupert who listeners might remember from the movie collapse that comes out in the early 2010s mike rupert was a peak oil truther um, of course obama's natural gas pivot uh totally wrecks that theory um a, who ends up becoming such an eco-pessimist he commits suicide on an indian reservation i think a few years ago um, and he has this whole like cult following. He started as out LAPD narcotics officer. You know, Mike Rupert wasn't wrong about anything, everything, you know, uh, I think he was very wrong on some of the things, some of those things he's best known for. A lot of it's his environmental stuff, but he's in the film hanging out with Sean Penn and these other people. Uh, and it turns out that he's a Ross Perot guy. Right. Now Ross Perot he understood what the deal with nafta was like that guy was a loon he was crazy he was virulently white right wing but he was an old school nationalist in the way that nobody was towards the end of the cold war and after and Mm -hmm. he knew what nafta was going to cost american manufacturing and in this whole campaign we've talked about this before on the show al gore showed up at a debate with a picture of uh 
uh, I think it's the Smoot Hawley tariff guys. And it was just like, these guys are what led to the great depression and does this whole like fucking supply sider thing mm-hmm. to try to deceive the audience that basically Ross Perot was right about what was going to happen there. You know, he really was. And he got laughed out of the room. And I think that's why there are people like Mike Rupert, who isn't necessarily right wing, was very concerned, actually, with how black America was being policed and stuff like that, who are still willing to go to bat for him. Um, and third partyism is a dead end then as now always will be. That's just not the way this country is structured. And it was depressing to see that come up as just like. Sean Penn being like, ah, you know, we got to have a third party. We got to do all these things. I was just like, yeah, Sean Penn, latest byline in Jacobin. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's so, um, it's funny to me how like, in a way they're kind of grappling with this disillusionment, right? The wars, the government's lying to you. Reagan took over. The thing in people kind of, don't remark upon this as much. I saw a few when Trump ascended, but Trump's ascendancy was almost identical to the Reagan ascendancy. Like, like this clownish uh, buffoon who was, you know, movie star, then a TV star. Um, Nobody thought he could win. It was literally a joke, you know, and then ends up winning. Reagan won by a bigger margin and actually did have political experience, but um, the, the reaction of the sort of, what we're now calling the PMC was exact identical, you know, just horrified that this could happen. Even coming off of like Watergate and Ford and which is shocking to me, you know, not being from that era, being like, I would think coming off Watergate, you would just be like, anything can happen here. You know what I mean? But really they were, it was scandalous that he uh, became president and everybody thought he'd only last one term and would fuck everything up and this and that. And um, yeah, so, um, but uh, to return to, I guess, what I, why I started that, um, the, the this idea that like, I guess everybody, it's like they're all struggling to get back into the system somehow, like to, to believe in it somehow. Like, um, like you were talking about the similarity of Trump earlier. I think the one sort of innovation, I guess, that Trump brought to the table was that he was kind of the authentic con, right? Like, mm-hmm. you're, like you're saying, he's going he's gonna to call it out before anybody else gets a chance to and just point out that he's a con man, which lends him a certain sort of authenticity for his fans, I think, mm-hmm. and make him credible in their view. Because maybe he could be your con man. Yeah. He's right? Like, con man, but he's my con man. And uh, all the other guys are con men pretending not to be con men. Yeah. And makes them even bigger cons, right? And, and also worse cons. Yeah. Right? Worse. Because yeah, their game has been called. Like, there's nothing worse than a shitty con man. <laughs> right? You know, you can't yeah. even respect it. Like, there's yeah. no artistry. There's yeah. no yeah. nothing. Yeah. It's like, yeah, the difference between, like, the casino owner and the guy running the three-card money thing on the corner, you know. Yeah. So like, but, but yeah, I, I mean, Penn and Rupert and those guys, yeah, they're, it's like, and even Downey himself, I guess, they're still, and, and at the end, it bookends this thing of like, oh, it's hope. And they, he and his father embrace over the setting sun and Clinton is this new era. And that was very much like how my parents thought of it, who my parents weren't as countercultural as Downey Sr. 
but th there was definitely that sense of like, oh, thank God that Reagan thing is over. Very much like how the, the pro-Biden people are now like, you know, thank God that that aberration, that sort of needle scratch on the record, the, the needle's been put back in the groove. Mm -hmm. Everything's back on track. We're return, we're the return to normalcy. Yeah, exact same kind of feeling, same kind of dynamic. Right. Uh, and people are still figuring out how to talk about the 90s. And I think yeah. Clinton really gives the language for that because some of the people that get interviewed, Dave Mustaine has this whole really almost inscrutable point about how like the U.S. has basically lost its consumer manufacturing base mm -hmm. uh, and is now basically only does like weapons. weapons manufacturing and that that doesn't benefit as many people. And then there's some guy on the, a plane that never really gets identified that's talking to Robert Downey Jr. who's talking about like industrial policy in Japan. And I'm like, what is this, 1986? You know, like... Yeah. nobody uh, really knows or his director one of the he was yeah, the, yeah one of the guys it, it's it's unclear who and i think what's what was fascinating about that to me is that we really are in this transition moment into the 90s you know like the 80s in a lot of ways don't really start to like 1984 or something like that. Like that's all the things we culturally and symbolically identify with the eighties really hits in 84. Yeah, sure. You know? And I think like 92, cause like after this point, like, you know, AZ gets interviewed. So we know Nas's Illmatic has dropped. Cypress Hill is on the right. Like gangster rap is becoming a thing. Like <laughs> uh, all of these sort of like joke or fun rappers are like their careers are over now. Sir Mix a Lot is not going to have another hit, you know, <laughs> like, and Nevermind is like moving up the charts at this point, right. right? So a lot of these signifiers are now in becoming a part of the dominant culture in 92 and the politics is starting to shift. But I love what you said about being locked out of the system because 92, the 90s to me really seems like the solidification of a process that begins in the 80s with Reagan. And especially it's like the after the 68 convention so maybe mm -hmm. even in the 70s of like basically how do we lock everyday people out of the basics of the party process mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and turn this into a media spectacle yeah and yeah, that's the, the oliver stone moment yeah <laughs> like where Danny's like this seems like kind of a media spectacle and oliver stone's like the noose around his neck like first time <laughs> you know like, yeah 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 like, like dude i was here in 68 man like like what do you yeah okay yeah, you have no idea <laughs> yeah and like that seems to be part of what we're living with still and i guess this is sort of the major ask and extra moment i kept watching this and thinking about like you know, I was very young at this time. I grew up in a Clinton household. I mean, my brother wrote a letter to the president and like got like a signed, you know, <laughs> like card back that was framed in my bedroom and I could look at it every night as I fell asleep in the top bunk. But what was it like for you, like watching this sort of unfold? Were you, did you give a shit in high school or did that come later? Like what basically like, what were the nineties for you as somebody who was living through them? Yeah, I had a. I was in high school for most of that. I was a junior when Clinton got elected, graduated in 93. So, and 
I was not aggressively political. I had opinions. My So I grew up in a suburb of D.C., basically, in Maryland. Both my parents, who were divorced, were... I'm just all like, looking back on it, it's really classic 90s stuff. Like, divorced parents. Both my parents were, like, federal civil servants. So, you know, middle class. Um, they were both sort of raised in sort of FDR, Democrat, you know the 30 glorious post-war years. Uh, mom was the first woman in the family that went to college um, back when it was like $1,500 a semester or something. And like, uh, and yeah, they were big Democrats uh, and Clinton very much was for them the return to um, the Kennedy, the aspirations of the Kennedys era which they lived through and in their view was like sort of tragically cut short. And the hope was that, that it would, was counter Reagan. And I think, again, I think the thing that really resonated me watching Downey Sr. being very much more like my parents in the sense that not really looking into it too deeply, you know, working in the federal government, they literally had the lived experience of when there's a democratic administration, like your job is easier and nicer. And when you're in a Republican administration, yeah. like your bosses are trying to destroy you and your job and all <laughs> of your work, right? And like, so they just went through eight years of Reagan basically telling them to quit. And then four years of Bush. And that all of their labor is worthless. And yeah, and then four years of Bush. And yeah, they kind of suffered it in that regard. But I don't know that they had a, like a... And, you know, my dad in particular was involved in things uh, where he, the government was actively intervening to make people's lives better. So interestingly, Clinton got in and Gore was the task leader on, you know, the scaling back government stuff. Mm -hmm. And they made him the, it was all under the guise of efficiency, right? But really they wanted to sort of cut the public sector or at least any of the welfare functions. And my dad was directly involved in that. He helped, uh, I think at the time he was doing um, sort of computerization stuff for a lot of the agencies that still were computerizing. So <laughs> that's a fast. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, it's like, um, you know, he had appointed officials saying to him, you know, you, we need you to make your operation more efficient and cut your workforce by 50% or something. The baseline assumption was government was inefficient and not yeah. running efficient. And in all- And areas. lessening things will make them more efficient. Right, yeah. So if we take money away, you're gonna be forced to do more with less and that'll cut the fat. Um, and, and that was without regard for, you know, the federal government's a vast sprawling heterogeneous entity. And my dad was working at the Bureau of Indian Affairs toward the end, which is the, most poorly funded government agency, as you can imagine. Yeah. And the best funded government agencies like the CIA and the NSA and, you know, all the NATSA stuff, like they get whatever they want and they're wildly inefficient because they just get, no one even knows where the money goes, right? Yeah, there's no oversight. There yeah, was... there's, yeah, there's no oversight. Yeah, I oversee the budget of the CIA. That is my job. <laughs> I will not get murdered in my sleep at any point. Right, totally. So, but going to someone in the BIA that it's like, they don't have any money to begin with. They're operating on a shoestring and then telling them they have to cut. And so I think for him, it was very clear that that 
the Clintonism became a continuation of Reaganism. But at the time, in the moment, there was some hope that the Reaganism was over, even though, I mean, it's hard to remember because I was in high school and I wasn't like glued to politics the way I became as an adult. And I had more right-leaning libertarian politics at that time. Mm -hmm. And I think mostly because I was rebelling against my parents who were like state agents, right? So yeah, was, and, and, you know, like typical Democrats, you know. Right, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, but yeah, the sense was very much like new dawn, hope, the man from hope, all of those sort of cliches. And generally the sense of like a relaxing of things like the Reagan era was like dreary for them intense, much in the same way that liberals dealt with Trump. Every day was an outrage. Every day was exhausting every day was like a sufferance, right? And then mm-hmm. to have that lifted just feels like a bit of a relief um, for them from their perspective. And then of course it flips for the other side. Um, so yeah, there was that, but then we were also coming on the end of the Cold War stuff and the Fukuyama stuff. And I didn't read that book at that time. I wasn't that sophisticated then, but, um, but there was very much the sense of like, now what? Um, where do we go from here? Do we go anywhere? There is no sense of forward movement anymore. They mm-hmm. say explicitly in this film, the, the sort of uh, suburban uh, poor couple says, yeah, well, there was the sense that our generate, you know, we're supposed to, the American dream is each generation makes progress. This is the first generation that isn't going to make progress. That was pretty palpable. Like, mm-hmm. uh, not that the, prospects were dim like all of my peers wanted I went to a well-funded public school that was functionally a private school and everybody had ambitions to go to good schools and get good jobs and enter the professions and make money and and have a house and kids in the suburbs and replicate the, the where where they had come from right like that was pretty standard thinking nobody thought that was close to them but there was a sense of like existential enemy what's it all for like definitely the the sort of exer like there's no great battles to be fought there's no like ex and no great undiscovered country to be explored um the slacker reality bites thing mm-hmm. was coming in the singles grunge all that stuff was coming in of like yeah you might as well like retire at 25 and like hang out in seattle and like go to shows and drink craft and fuck off yeah Fuck off, because like really, like who ca- like who gives a shit? You know, like why? What are we? What- it seems like the yeah, the drop in part, or drop out part of the '60s was still like alive in that part of the Gen X experience, where it was like fuck that. Where there, by the time yeah. we get to to millennial shit, it's like really about being an entrepreneur of the self. Like that feels way more baked into what I grew up with than sure. I think what you did. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it wasn't like dropout in the 60s sense, which it was a countercultural movement, which was meant to subvert the mainstream culture by not participating in it and sort of depriving it of bodies, right? Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was more like, it was more like opt out, like just like, eh. <laughs> yeah, and that there really isn't any, um, you can't really do anything good. So why do anything at all? Um, like this, the, the system 
isn't going to change. The problems aren't really going to change. You kind of get that in this movie as well, this sort of sense of like, there are problems. We don't, the only people in the movie that are offering a concrete solution to their issue are the AIDS activists who are saying we want more funding for research, right? As a right, and, and who are very clear. They're like, we need people on every side of the aisle on, like they show up mostly at the democratic stuff, but right. they're not like opposed to working with other people. They're like, everyone has to agree in order for us to get any of this forward, which makes them probably more like authentically political right. than they anything have a else that's going. And they have a strategy. Yeah. And have, yeah, and they're moving toward it. And they have a series of tactics that are tailored around the strategy. And that they've rehearsed and that they execute yeah. on, you know, yeah. like they are, yeah. you know, ready and, to go. Yeah. And the other factions uh, don't seem to have a goal, uh, seem to be just asserting like moral first principles uh, that are inarguable. Um, yeah. It's the emotivism problem. It's like somebody else could have an equally rational worldview that has different first principles right that and undermines what they're saying or like is at least counter to it and there's no way to resolve that or to think through it or to politically resolve yeah. that and i remember that I, I do remember from that time i can't remember what the specific issue was but there was a supreme court protest between pro and anti-choice um protesters something was being decided i remember going down there and sort of spectating it mm -hmm. you know in the same way that downey does and yeah just regarding it as this sort of eternal stalemate you know and just like the attitude is sort of like, okay you know like yes these are important issues to some degree you know i certainly lean on one side of that i would rather live in a society that has uh, has that decided more or less in one way or the other than the other, but like that's going to just kind of happen. <laughs> yeah. Whether I get involved in it or not. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing to me now is that the contemporary situation has kind of brought out my inner exer. There was like a period in the, the post 9-11 era where I like got super, you know, involved in politics and organized and was an activist and, participated a lot and did a lot of things and and now it's sort of like I feel like I'm very much coming back to that sort of extra mentality and I'm wondering like whether that's sort of ingrained in me and I just can't I can't do the millennial thing I cannot use social media to brand myself I, like I just I've tried <laughs> right and it feels corny right it feels corny and weird yeah, and you're self-conscious and like yeah failing and I like talk to <laughs> I do like talk to a millennial you know and it just yeah I feel so self-conscious it's yeah. just like wearing well, a, a, a rented tux to the dance you know yeah 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 well because also like the Gen X thing like has that ironic quality to it that's a different kind of irony that to right. me like the the thing that unites let's say the millennials and the zoomers is an irony that's really tied to a nihilism and maybe a surrealism that I think is really brought about by living life on the internet and sort of the random montage of things that just become your everyday life. And to me, one of the things that the Gen Xers had in common with the boomers was a, a concern for this authenticity 
um, regardless of even if you were sort of opting out or whatever by the time uh, Gen X happens. And that that's the irony turned around that, where it's just like, well, this isn't really the genuine article. Or this is, and that's basically a thing that would inhibit a Gen Xer from doing the entrepreneurism or the NGOism of the self. You know, there's a great moment of that in the film. I th- it was the funniest thing that happens in the film to me is when uh, the Fleetwood Mac song, uh, Go Your Own Way, starts playing at the convention and Robert Downey Jr. turns to the, <laughs> the camera and he says, oh, Fleetwood Mac, this is really feeling like the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <it was amazing. laughs> and then it reminded me of the John Mulaney bit where he was just like, yeah, they used a song from Rumors as their campaign song a song from an album about cheating on people made by people who were cheating on each other. Clinton was telling us who he was <laughs> right out the gate. Yeah. <laughs> no, totally. Totally. Yeah. Th- I mean, yeah, it's but definitely um, the concern for us and authenticity is a thing with my generation. I think the millennials have, you know, transcended that. I think, and accurately, I don't think, uh, t- I don't think it's rational to think of authenticity as a thing. And there were people in my generation that understood that at the time, I think Kim Gordon said, or maybe it was Thurston Moore said, you know, once the music leaves your head, it's already been compromised. And and I think Jim Jarmusch has a pretty famous quote about like, there is no originality, there's no authenticity, there's just stealing and remaking. Everything's Mm -hmm. a remix. Uh, I spent a lot of time in, the film and television world, career-wise, I'm not there anymore. And yeah, I think that's certainly true for art making. That everyone's stealing, and that's as it should be. Like that, everything's always culture is that. That is yeah, 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 totally. Well, and also I think that part of the authenticity thing is, I mean, H.G. Frankfurt wrote that famous essay in the Bush era called "On Bullshit." Right, where he's like, sincerity is bullshit. It's a great little essay. I mean, Zizek rightly points out that it's funny that he's basically for authenticity reasons. Issue Frankfurt was a fan of John McCain, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but it's perfectly fine to be like a participant in something you criticize very correctly. You know, that happens all the time. Yeah, that's something that, uh, I mean, even, and the conservatives do it too, right? I think there's this idea because, the media is so captured by like the left liberal nexus, something which comes up in the film that basically feels like it was ripped out of today's social media discourse that people forget that conservatives are often guilty of this as well. I mean, if you read um, Pearlstein's Goldwater book before or the coming storm or before the storm or something like that, it's mm-hmm. clear that those people are also doing uh, an authenticity style politics as well there. But I guess in the sense that they're like, who's really down for this? Like who's like, you know, just who's a poser and who's not, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I I mean, do you think any of that got mixed up in the Trump era where they just stopped caring about that or like, no, I think we're seeing that fight happen now. I think we're seeing that fight happen now with what to do with Trumpism as a legacy. Mm-hmm. And you can see who's sorted into poser and not, right? So sort of the guy to follow on who's waging that war would be somebody like Pedro Gonzalez, because he's basically like throw the whole Trump legacy in the trash. Right. So it gives him the advantage, critically speaking, to sort of point out like what is and 
isn't in bad faith sort of in that world. Not that you have to agree with him all the time, but I think he has a good perspective on it. So there are some people that are like, you know, we need to uphold Trumpism or whatever. And then it turns out that they're just doing like a 509 C3, like grift <laughs> to hoover up a bunch of money and they'll send you a t-shirt or whatever. And then they'll shut it down. Like whenever they do it. And then there are the people who are like, no, I'm really a committed nationalist. And like, and maybe like a Josh Hawley type or something like that. And they're like, this person is more the genuine article or DeSantis is sort of a figure that's seen as more the general genuine article now than, um, you know, other people who are coming out of that. So mm. I think that that's how that looks on the right. As far as I can tell, I mean, I'm not fully immersed in that world. Yeah. It's just, yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess that's that, that, and I guess that's kind of what's coming back to me now, that sense of like time is a flat circle. So how do you find an entry point to get engaged with anything? How do you have, um, I guess, you know, and that's kind of the extra thing is basically because of these concerns about authenticity, like there's no um, like real uh, impulse toward like a civic life or a social life, right? So. No, it's still about like an inner existential in the almost philosophical sense, crafting of the self. Right, but you're also not gonna do that successfully. That's, I think that's the difference between us and sort of the boomer generation is that it's like, they think they can get, they do enough EST and Esalen Institute shit and they're gonna get there, right? Yeah, for sure. They're gonna go do gestalt therapy and scream and holler and roll around the floor and eventually they'll and that clearly didn't work out. Um, and I, so we're also at the point where the abandoning, like the 68 turn where the state basically just kicks everyone's ass and says, stop, you know, like. Fucking knock it off. Yeah. A revolution here. This yeah. is the United States. We're in fucking charge and we'll just fucking kill you and keep killing you until. Right. And we're in a, and we're in a civilizational conflict with the Soviet Union. Yeah. Everything is subordinated to that conflict. Right, nominally, I th- yeah, I think yeah, I think a lot of them knew at the time, but that that was sort of. Well, we could say that it was like a justification for things they were going to do anyway, but it still operates, I think, psychologically in the public's sphere as like the real experience. I mean, we see that in the movie. People be kind of like, yeah, what do we do after the Cold War? And they were kind of like, yeah, I don't know. And one of the things that you and I talked about was there are all sorts of things to admire in what happened and act up and the AIDS activists you see in the film and things like that. Um, but it is sort of the politics of bare life that the minimal standard for something mattering is like not dying. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems very compelling explicitly to Robert Downey Jr. And a lot of people at the end of the film, they sort of go around in a circle and explain like why AIDS is sort of the most compelling political thing that's going right now. And then you pointed out that like, yeah, there's sort of this learned existential quality from the cold war where the only thing that can matter politically is like life or death, because that was how that war was described for decades. And so that's your rubric for political importance. Right. 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 Everything has to be a gigantomachia between these, you know, Titanic ideological formations that are civilization destroying. And uh, yeah, it's interesting to me though, in the body of the film. So he says in a scene, 
I'm really drawn to the AIDS issue because it's a life and death issue. And I really respect you guys as activists because you're fighting for your lives and the lives of other people. But the thing that they actually do keep returning to in the movie is the homelessness and the poverty. And I think the scene with the Wall Streeters is kind of apt there because at that point we've had 12 years and the suburban poor family says that and they cut from those guys, I think right into that suburban scene and they say, he says, what do you think of this rhetoric, the bootstrap rhetoric of the Republican convention? He says, yeah, that's what we've been hearing for 12 years. I'm like, and we're here, like getting food stamps, <laughs> like yeah. in our suburban bungalow. So it's like, I think the thing that, it's just that, you know, it's like the, this classic American thing where like, like Downey doesn't have uh, the language to talk about it, but he understands, I think in a kind of an intuitive way, that it's a concern or it bothers him, like the poverty and the homelessness that he's seeing. There's no way to live in LA and not be absolutely horrified by what's happening in Skid Row. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is, it is a, it's like, it's a hard, like listener, it's hard to capture how horrific things like the Tenderloin in San Francisco and yeah. Skid Row in downtown LA are. Right, and you can't square it like I've been to developing countries that have, you know, defined shanty towns in urban areas. And in like in that situation, that's just, um, that's how it is. That's how it's always been. That's part of the structure of the thing. Um, it doesn't have any conflict with the ethos of the place, right? But like when you're in LA and you're seeing all of that and then you're contrasting it with the glittery American dream stuff and the dream factory stuff. That's when like the cognitive dissonance gets like super extreme. Mm -hmm. How do you get this greatest country in the world business with all of that going on? And why is this such an insoluble problem? And again, but he just, there's no language to talk about it. There's no conceptual apparatus that they and there's and to, so it's all at the level of and the whole movie is like that. It's like this naive, um, you know, I go out in the world and I just talk to random people in a random order. And I, and, I, and I have like things that I'm kind of drawn to or not. I don't know why I'm drawn to them. I can't really examine why I'm drawn to them because I don't, uh, I'm not even thinking in that direction. And it's just, yeah, it's just, it's real Plato's cave stuff. Like, I think it's just very much like, um, I, I don't know really what I'm getting at. Maybe you can pick up the ball. No, I mean, I think part of what's happening here is that there's interestingly zero history in the film. Yeah. <laughs> there's no context for anything. And I want to say somewhat in Downey's defense, that does not seem atypical of yeah. all sorts of political discussions that were happening then or now. Where yeah. it's like, they're just people, the microphone gets put in front of them, they tell you something emotional, you're like, wow, that sounds bad. You look around at some images, you're like, seems complicated. And then you're on to the next thing, <laughs> you know? Like, that's the experience of scrolling through the timeline. Yeah. You know, it's just like, that's what this is as a movie. This movie was basically the first version of scrolling through the TL, is what, yeah. <laughs> is how it feels, you know? Yeah, it's very much like, a, <laughs> he like made Twitter the movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, especially when we look at things like homelessness or whatever, people pin that a lot on Reagan, despite the fact that it was like 
the Senate who overwhelmingly voted to close down a lot of those facilities, you know, I mean, Reagan didn't veto it. He wasn't inclined to, but like it wasn't his agenda necessarily that was doing that. And a lot of those things actually start with JFK himself, you know, so this is a longer problem that has like deeper antecedents that are bipartisan than like anything else. And like, that's part of the danger of there being like zero history with which to engage in is not that you even need to ascribe blame to one camp or another, but mm-hmm. that understanding how decisions were made and why is not something this film attempts to even approach mm-hmm. in terms of its outset. And yet it's treated as if his act of witness and his willingness to be emotionally involved in the spectacle of the process is praiseworthy in and of itself and is in fact a kind of civic engagement. And that's more or less how his dad talks about it. Right. I'm proud of you, son. You got involved. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You went to the big show, you brought a camera, you said some stuff, you know, what more can we ask? Like, that's what it's all about. Right, 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 right. Yeah. You know, just muck in there and see what happens. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And also that it's, um, and that the political is the people who are doing the things that are called political. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. like it's very much nuclear not, means nuclear. <laughs> yeah. But it's also not, it's very much not like, um, you know, I live in LA and uh, I'm going to like phone up my local rep and like talk to them because like I'm a movie star and I can and I could easily have gotten a meeting with this congressman, right? On camera, almost certainly, right? Um, when I was in LA, my congressman was, um, he's the Russiagate guy, the dipshit defense industry show. Yeah, Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff, yeah. And... When I was there, I was I left in 2017, so Trump was president. And I was working in the movies and, you know, everybody hated Trump as, you know, Hollywood went for Clinton by like 5 million points. Insane margins. It was like James Woods and one other person. And like, yeah. Somebody from an 80s movie. Yeah, yeah. And uh yeah, and so, um, but again, consumed, like I was on Facebook then, I'm, I've deleted my account since then, but like timeline consumed with Russia stuff, you know, just from all the people I knew in, the, in, the, in that uh, industry. And, you know, while I was in LA, homelessness increased 15%. I lived in Los Feliz, which was like a gentrified post-hipster, hipster neighborhood, you know, kind of like williamsburg and, um, and yeah, at the end of my block, within the three years I was there, there were a tent encampment developed, you know, just in that time, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, so I'm like working with people who are like literally stepping over homeless people on their way to work to get online and random rave about how Putin's destroying America, you know? And it's, it's like, like the movie, seem to have those kinds of hallmarks too. Not that Downey's tenor was totally different and he definitely wasn't approaching it from that sort of self-righteous angle, but just that politics is what we're doing at the, is is this national spectacle. It is these issue-based groups. It is these large conventions. 
he like acknowledges that it's spectacular, but still assumes that that's the realm of politics and not like what's going on in LA city council. Like he, yeah. he goes, he goes to Hollywood Boulevard and talks to the homeless people, but he never goes to like their, the city councilor for that area and says, what's going on here? Like, right. Right. Why, why do these people not have homes? Like mm-hmm. he could have, if he'd actually followed his like empathetic interests, he probably would have made a movie about home, the homelessness problem. Like with mm-hmm. any sort of documentary or journalistic rigor, right? You know, yeah. Being like, I see this thing, this phenomenon in the world that is generally moving to me, and painful, and mm-hmm. I explore it in some kind of disciplined fashion. But like, doesn't have again like conceptual tools or or even like really cinematic journalistic tools to do that. So then it's like, well, no, it seems impossible to wrangle, like as far as the director's concerned or whoever, like how this movie is it seems like a bunch of different movies all stitched together at some point and i mean i guess like it's worthwhile to take a step back now that we're 30 years out from this and see how many of these people agree with each other now Mm. right a good person to start with is mike rupert right Mm. sort of the eco-pessimist guy we were talking about before who is a ross perot dude etc etc him and Al Gore, after Al Gore releases an inconvenient truth, basically agree that the world is ending and that we need to do all sorts of renewables build outs. And maybe you need to farm in your backyard too, because that's totally how agriculture works. Um, you know, and we need to do that. Sean Penn agrees with all sorts of stuff like that. Robert Downey Jr famous for playing a DOD adjacent arms dealer in a DOD semi-funded Universal Pictures uh, Marvel movie franchise is basically being like, I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. Like I'm a basically black bog standard, you know, centrist who's exceptionally wealthy and lives in Hollywood, you mm-hmm. know, things like that. But I uh, don't worry. I won't say anything problematic, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess the thing that I've noticed, you know, over the past like 30 years or whatever, over the course of my life, you know, is that I see more and more of these people agreeing while the sense of division becomes more and more acute within their sphere. Because of course, the more you agree overall, the more heated the conflicts are going to be over those things you don't agree on, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, the story of the last 30 years has really been one of consolidation. And mm-hmm. of course, we still have a lot of the same symptoms. We still have a lot of the same weird uh, culture war stuff. But uh, as you said, it seems like some pe- uh, more people than I've seen are w- before are waking up to that sort of being this distraction that, as you said, is supposed to be continued, never conquered, you know, mm-hmm. and that we're really in the thrall of these media people that mm-hmm. to the extent that they're political is the extent to which everything is about their interests. Mm-hmm. And like, that's it. So we're constantly beholden to their stupid culture war bullshit while all of the other things that would rightly be considered politics just falls to the wayside. And that's the way in which the culture war becomes a class war 
in and of itself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by sheer narrowing of what gets to be an issue and what doesn't. Yeah, uh, the horizon of dispute. I mean, the the current the the Biden era so far feels very much like the '90s to me in that regard. Oh yeah, like the the Republicans are kind of in disarray. They're having this argument about who's the, the one true Trumper uh, and or like the culture war stuff is all the same. All the Mr. Potato Head, the like all of that stuff. I mean, it just like one for one identical, straight up Rush Limbaugh stuff. And like to the point where it gets a little like psychologically difficult to deal with because it's like you feel like you're coming unglued after it's just like the time is a flat circle stuff. And that's how I felt watching some of the left protests happening at the DNC where it was just yeah. like, you know, we're like pro creativity, pro queer, pro this. You're like, yeah, I like women about all the pro. That's literally the in this house, we believe. Yeah, in this. <laughs> Literally, yeah literally. yeah and it's just like look i'm not like generally like opposed to those things but like that's also like not a politics. politics yeah that's not a politics that's not a framework for action that's not a strategy and it's not a rubric for like figuring out how things are working and what's going on and i think yeah i mean and again like that the sort of post the, the one thing that was comforting i think to a lot of people about the cold war it was this the sense of like there are these ideolo- ideologies um, these words capitalism communism and fascism mean certain things broadly now it's like and and they're in conflict and you have to take a side in that conflict and now we're trying to recreate that and you can see that like you know they're they're trying to do this with china and it's like they just want that old time religion back, baby. Yeah, yeah. Like, Give me that moral certainty, man. I need a good war. I need a good opponent. I need a good us, them, friend, enemy distinction. And and it's not going to work because like China is not communist in the way that the Soviet Union was communist. The, you know, and also the, we didn't have we didn't offshore to the Soviet Union. Right. Like we yeah. didn't have tons of assets tied up with them. They didn't. Right. And vice versa. We're thoroughly imbricated with them economically in a way that we weren't with the Soviets. The the Chinese are the second largest economy in the world in the way that the Soviets are not, were not. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Soviets were completely, I mean, it was, it was all shadow play and horseshit. And then, yeah. And then with China, the expectation is they're going to take over, but I don't know how you gin up, you know, the sort of, nationalistic sentiment barring some kind of you know red flag waving event like you know or bloody shirt waving event um but yeah you can see that there's just this impulse this impulse to return to that and this displacement impulse like you know that, like we have to that america's always had this sort of frontier you know we can always sort of displace all of these internal conflicts into like growth and then the, the rhetoric we're getting out of Biden is we're going to prevent China from becoming a mother. Now we're going to outdo them. Like we're not going to go faster than them. We're not, we're not going to be better. We're just going to keep a lid on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So like that horizon's totally cut off. And then to me, that feels very 90s as well. Like there wasn't, um, Clinton said, you know, the era of big government's over. Okay. So like, what are we going to do? Like, what is that? me like yeah you know, 
there's just this directionlessness, this visionlessness, this trajectorylessness. Well, and it's like no one, no one really takes responsibility for society, neither the body politic nor its administrators. Right. You know, it's, it's unclear what America is for. And <laughs> the Cold War was super convenient for being, because you could just say not that. Yeah. While you did all sorts of like weird shit in Central America. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> and I, I mean, that's palpable in the movie too. Yeah, I mean, that scene, that's why that suburban scene, you know, where he says, like, what have you done for your neighbor who is uh, impoverished and, and going in for food stamps? And she says, well, you know, and she starts listing things. And, and it's striking because they're doing it on the suburban street, which is supposed to be a neighborhood, but isn't a neighbor, isn't a community, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A classic American thing. And He's basically saying, you know, what do you owe your fellow Americans, you know? And she mm -hmm. says, well, I hire her to babysit and I give her first dibs. Like the, the only sort of thing that they can think of is to hire them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like to replicate that relationship. Mm -hmm. And then she goes on for a couple of things and says, well, you know, the bread, I, she gets there in the end. Does she? And it's kind of obscured by the way he cuts a, away from it. But like she says, you know, the bread I have is her bread. Like, oh, we do actually owe each other things and we should be sharing things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that's not the impulse. And like, I don't know. I, yeah, it, it's like, what do you have to do to get beneath the layers of this sort of encrusted cultural stuff? And how I'm very interested in a sort of detached, not ironic, but detached way. I don't feel like I have, and this is a very extra thing, I guess, a, a, a dog in this fight anymore. And I'm more, um, I was reading Adam Tooze the other day and I was sort of, he has this thing about seeing current events as history, you know? Yeah. Just kind of taking the view from Mars all the time. But it's also difficult to live that way, right? Like it's not fulfilling as a person because you're not, there's a dimension to human life that is necessarily social and political and to cut that off and to be aloof from it is to in some sense be incomplete but it's also not clear how you can complete that complete that yes yeah. any way that's i don't want to say satisfactory because it's always an ongoing thing but like um like somehow fulfilling or rewarding or or makes you feel like a whole person right like there's always going to be this like alienation at some level. Um, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it's. Unless you can brand. Self -brand. Maybe the millennials haven't figured out. And they can... <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that. Um, but yeah. what I can say is that like, that feels part of the why nothing feels possible theme. Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about sort of the neo Aristotelian or neo Thomistic thing McIntyre's doing and that there might indeed be a sort of telos or an excellence um, of humanity that is in part achieved by the political and denying that to deny part of the self um, and part of the whole um, in a pretty severe way. And maybe that's part of what's happening here. I mean, what I will say is this, like, I would encourage people to watch the last party because the footage is really interesting Mm -hmm. um, if you can make it past the first like 15 minutes, you'll be able to finish it because mm -hmm. it is 
uh, jarring at the outset because you can really tell they have no idea what they're, you don't even know they're going to go to the Republican national convention until they do. And you're like, Oh, okay. So you're going to do both. <laughs> you know, is a part of the halfway mark of the film. You're like, what, what's going on here? Uh, and then they show up in Houston and you're like, Oh, okay. It's about the conventions, <laughs> you know? So, but it's worth watching for all the reasons above. And um, as ever on exhaust, we want to take a look at these things as like understanding these longer, longer trajectories and, you know, a way in which sort of the Clinton era doesn't end because the Clinton era is part of the Reagan era, which is, you know, part of these longer decisions and cascading cause and effect things. And also like personnel doesn't change a whole lot in some of these offices, administration to administration, which is a whole nother thing to take into effect. So, um, with that said, thank you, listener, for sending this movie in. Uh, it was awesome to watch and talk about. And thank you, Josh, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I had a great time. Good. And stay safe out there, guys. Fuck off. Exactly. What else? Huh? What's that? What's I the... hate you. I hate everybody. Everyone should die. to Hollywood They find you to Come on, come on, come on,